0: Hello and welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast presented by Golf Digest. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest Magazine. This is Episode 65 and my guest is Scott Sherman. F. Scott Fitzgerald once famously said, There are no second acts in American lives. It was probably the most inaccurate thing his otherwise brilliant mind ever conjectured. For what we're seeing now in just the small crescent moon of golf course architecture is a complete repudiation of that notion. Golf design has been in a period of professional revivalism for years, with large numbers of architects enjoying robust second acts. Scott Sherman's story is by now, at least to listeners of Feed the Ball, a familiar one. He began working with the Dye family in 1990, a relationship that brought him into the same orbit as Bobby Weed. Eventually, Sherman joined Weed as an associate, And through the late 1990s and early 2000s, he was leading the design efforts of the group's most prominent new courses, including Old Farm in Virginia, Spanish Oaks near Austin, and the Slammer and the Squire at World Golf Village. Then, tragedy. At least, economic tragedy. The recession of 2009 created epic displacement throughout the business, and Sherman, as was the case with so many other talented designers, was rendered suddenly independent. And that's when he fell out of sight. Of course, that isn't literally true. Sherman took on renovation and remodel work and joined forces on select projects with other architects. But that was just my perspective. However it was, I didn't hear his name for quite some time. Then, a number of years ago, Sherman began working with Love Golf Design. That's the firm of Mark and Davis Love III. One of the things I've always admired about Mark and Davis is that when business dried up, they stepped back. They didn't chase projects. You can hear more about that in the archives, episode 8, and my talk with Mark Love. But when their phone began ringing again, and they needed a newly designer to resume the practice, they turned to Scott Sherman. Sherman led the team during the transformation of the old ocean course at Sea Pines into Atlantic Dunes, a remarkable metamorphosis that infused the tire design with angles and dramatic sand elements. Last fall, they completed the total reworking of the plantation course at Sea Island, replacing the course's soft, resorty architecture with sharp, poignant features and strategies that recall Walter Travis, Seth Rayner, and Pete Dye. And the group continues on with several new projects, including two in Virginia, while Sherman, on his own, also carries out a program of minor alterations to Keo Island's Ocean Course in preparation for the 2021 PGA Championship. Scott was there during the height of Pete Dye's prowess and for the crest of the great golf development boom of the 90s. He's also seen the business's lowest points, and he's made it out on the other side, doing some of the finest and most creative work of his career. So now, please, sit back, or get up and get going, and enjoy getting to know, or getting reacquainted, with Scott Sherman. find this interesting. I recently visited a golf course that had been closed for a few years. So it was pretty overgrown and and the Bermuda was pretty high and I was walking around this this property. It's a really nice property, a core property and just this vastness uh, of of a situation of, of a piece of land that really hadn't didn't seem like anybody'd been on it for a number of years and I'm walking around and I'm walking up the side of tea boxes, and the Bermuda's up you know over my ankles. in some cases, it's a little deeper, and it's eerily quiet out there. and I, I got f- uh, frightened. It was in the middle of the day, but I was there's was nobody around and I, I kept thinking like there's there's probably snakes in here <laughs> or, or you know some kind of creatures or critters that, that I mean and, and I started to wonder if I should even be out there if it was like a safe environment. Right. But you once. <laughs> we're on a site trudging through nature and you were literally attacked by a wild boar and knocked down.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. That, that takes was, it to a whole nother that, level. It it did. That was something else. And you know it, it's it, it's funny I for whatever reason seemed to hear that story come back at me over and over after all of these years. And gosh, that's been 20 plus years ago. We, we were laying out, believe it or not, a somewhat replica of the 17th hole uh, at TPC Sawgrass. We were in Hawaii working on the Big Island, and it was a really interesting site. Um, it, as you may know, the Big Island has lots of lava, uh, but our site happened to be an, an ash site, so we had soil. And, and so we were on the side of the hill uh, working fairly easily in, in this soil. And so we had the opportunity to to actually dig a couple of lakes. And we were laying out this lake for what was going to be the 17th hole at Big Island Country Club. And this site had all kinds of wildlife, meaning uh, geese and and sporting birds uh, just everywhere. And it was really interesting. They had been introduced to the site. So we're trudging through the brush that was uh, head high, really. And I was on one end of a of a uh, measuring tape, and my colleague was hundreds of feet away, and I couldn't see him. And I heard, you know, rustling in the in the brush, and I, I thought, well, this would be neat to see what kind of bird is going to jump out if I sh- if I throw a rock in their direction. So I picked up a, a rock and threw it into the brush, and the next thing I knew, uh, I was charged by this wild boar, <laughs> who, who thankfully decided not to take me out that day. Uh, honestly i screamed like a little girl as loud <laughs> as i could <laughs> and i just instantly became hoarse he knocked me down he hit me in my shins and he was standing right over me face to face or actually face to tusk uh, <laughs> with this couple hundred pound wild boar and i guess i yelled so loud that uh, all of our crew heard me and uh the the wild boar took off and the the crew ran to their pickup trucks for their rifles and off they went on a hunt for this wild boar, um, which I learned later actually wasn't so wild. The, the the native folks there, they would take the piglets and raise them to a certain age and then they would castrate the, the, the males and they would put a little notch in each one of their ears and then turn them out to, to grow and one day harvest harvest the boar for for a cookout um, and they they could tell that this was one of those and so he eventually was harvested and we eventually had a, a, a luau basically <laughs> so, so you got your revenge it was ultimately interesting. <laughs> right right well it was it was his time apparently
0: is that the strangest thing that's happened to you on a construction site
1: uh yes and no i've i've had a couple of tangles with one of one of which included my uh, um golden retriever gracie uh who uh both of us almost got taken out by this eight foot long alligator actually at number one t at long cove on hilton head um that was a sort of a horrific experience and thankfully i got some help
0: yeah walk us through this this tale as well
1: oh goodness well so Oh, we were doing renovation at Long Cove. And I was actually between projects where I could drive. Uh, we were working, I believe, in Linville, North Carolina, and doing a renovation at Long Cove. And this has been a number of years ago, maybe building a short game area as well. And I had the dog. Uh, I had picked up the dog from my family and was taking the dog back home to Florida. And so I kept her on our on, on her leash all day long. And you know, it's hot during the summer and so forth. And kept her with me, and at the end of the day, I thought, you know, I'll go out into the woods and just let her go and let her run and stretch before we have to get in the car. Well, I, everything was fine until I unhooked her, and she decided not to be in the woods and ran for the lake at number one T, <laughs> and in she went, and, you know, I really didn't think much of it at first, but as soon as she started splashing around, I could see a gator enter the water from the opposite side if you know long cove number nine is sort of on the opposite side and here comes this gator and it was it was like a, a three minute nightmare unfolding in front of me because my golden retriever gracie was not coming uh, back to me and i am hollering at this dog to get out of the water and here comes the gator and eventually, a couple of folks ran out from their homes and was trying to help me. I'm knee-deep in the water trying to get my dog, and this gator comes right up to Gracie, and Gracie turned, and they got face-to-face, and it scared my dog. And she snapped at the at the gator's snout. And I thought, oh, goodness, what am I going to tell my children about what's happened to my poor dog? <laughs> so... The next thing I know, that was enough to scare her to come towards us uh, on the bank. And I had a, a gentleman who I don't even know who that is at this point. He had me by the by my belt holding on to me. And here comes my dog. And as I grab my dog, the gator floats up. And that was the first time you could tell how big this guy was. And I grab the dog and the guy grabs me and pulls me up to the top of number one T and I guess the Gator wasn't as, as as hungry as he might have been because he could have taken all of us out that day. <laughs> wow. And the uh, the gentleman, and a couple other people around, were like, "What? What happened? What were you thinking?" I said, I, "I was just letting my dog run, and she wanted to get in into the water quickly and cool off." And they were like, "You know." We've we've had dogs taken out here uh, by gators before, so please don't do that again. You scared <laughs> us to death. <laughs> so you can imagine how scared I was, and it took me it took me a good day to gather myself and then tell my family this story. Um, and thankfully, Gracie lived a long and happy life.
0: You know, if you if you play golf or, or live in Florida, you kind of get accustomed to alligators, but the first few times you encounter them, it's, it's chilling. You know, if you don't, if you haven't lived in the Southeast and you come from other parts of the country, you know, you've only seen photographs or maybe in a zoo you've seen them. But when you see come across a gator, just uh, sunning on the bank of, a, of next to a lake on a golf course, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting encounter to, to go through that. In fact, I had a, um, and you'll appreciate this. My wife is from uh, Gainesville, Florida, and she had a roommate who was dog sitting and uh, a, a friend's dog, and she took the dog around the lake on campus. I think it's called Gator Lake. And uh, on the University of Florida campus, there's this lake a- a that has, you know, hundreds of alligators who live there. Mm-hmm. And it's probably known to many people. Maybe you don't want to walk your dog around that, close right. to that lake. But this poor little young teenager or college student, whatever, I don't know how old she was. Was dog sitting, walked the dog, and lost the dog. Uh, one of the gators popped out and, you know, ate it like a
1: biscuit. Oh, oh yeah. Well, and you mentioned Gainesville and University of Florida. The the, the golf course that we redesigned there um, at UF yeah. uh, had a resident gator who would hang around On the, the uh, pond. Uh, was, yeah, number two and number eight share that same pond. And like clockwork, uh, in the afternoon, he would get out of that pond and walk across three fairway and seven fairway and head for the, is it Lake Louise or something that's off site? He would find his way through that fence. And it was, I have, I have multiple pictures of him within 15 feet of me, just walking his way across our construction site. And he obviously was used to us and it took a little while to get used to him. Uh, but he felt very comfortable, you know, checking things out as he strolled by. <laughs> it was it was something else.
0: Well, that was one of, that might have been on that golf course the first time I ever encountered a, a live alligator. You know, and I, I was on the eighth hole, and I remember I, I pulled my tee shot. It's a par three over water. I pulled my tee shot over by that left of the green, over by that tree, and I get over there, and it's about ten feet away from this big old
1: black alligator about seven yep, years yep. old, that's the guy. He's probably been he there for prob- decades. Probably so, yes. And he did. he's never been aggressive and was not for the many months we were there. And so everybody sort of just had an understanding.
0: Yes. <laughs> well, I, I bet every uh, um, architect and designer you talk to has a story like that from, from being in the field and having something bizarre, not an alligator or a wild boar, but but some kind of strange uh, I- encounter. I, I think that's just part of the the business, I guess, when you're out in nature, working in undeveloped environments, you're gonna come across crazy things.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely, and and you know, Derek, it's one of the one of the reasons why I think a lot of us are in the business is because we love nature, we love being outside, we don't want to be confined to the four walls of an office. And and you're exactly right. I mean, I you know, less dramatic examples, but nonetheless in, impactful to me have been. My encounters with bald eagles. I mean, I had no idea how big a bald eagle was until one landed, you know, down in front of me, um, one time at the World Golf Village. And, and I could just go on and on about the otters I have seen. And we saw a, a Florida Panther down at the World Golf Village. And, and, it, you know, I, I often tell the story, of course, golf does a much better job today of talking about how we we interact and are seamless and are beneficial to the environment. But every, every species of wildlife that I have encountered for the first time, just about in every case, has been on a golf course, whether it was under construction or uh, playing a golf course. And I, I think that's a story people are more familiar with today. Uh, but, y- you know, again, the affinity we have for the outdoors Um, And for nature is why we do what we do and we try to manage these sites, you know, as sensitively as we can because of that affinity for nature.
0: Golf does do a much better job of explaining that to the general public. And it needs to be told more because if you think about what golf courses are in the best circumstances, they're, they're nature preserves. They're anywhere from 150 to 250 or 300 acres of undeveloped land at least that's the way it used to be. Now, we got into the housing development era and, you know, golf course, you know, you just have one hole here and one hole there. That's not really a great environment for, for you know, all this habitat to come out. But on a nicely designed golf course, it occupies a, a significant amount of space, even in an urban environment. It's a perfect place, you know, for, to rehabilitate nature and, and to let animals come free, especially at night. You know, the nocturnal animals, they have the place of themselves. We could do a much that's, better job of, right. of continuing to uh, illustrate that fact.
1: Oh, I, I totally agree. Uh, and it's funny, you mentioned uh, even even at night uh, up at, in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia, we came across a bear early in the morning. You know, we all like to get out and start work early in the morning. And he was, he was ending his hunt for the night and came across this bear. And again, it was frightening at first, but really, you know, awe-inspiring to watch this bear interact with us and sort of go his merry way. But, you know, again, these these things happen over and over and over again and it's 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 one of the intangibles and sort of uh, bonuses of being in the business we're in
0: and sometimes the wild element that you encounter on a virgin site is a human or humans (laughs) (laughs) i've heard stories of of some strange (laughs) encounters with uh, with local people who aren't expecting to see a golf architect tromping around in the woods
1: that that's right Uh, i we we have come across uh, some uh, let's say, shall we say, long-term campers on some of our sites. <laughs> and, you know, we don't ever really know exactly what to do about that. We just inform the owner that, hey, you've got some folks that have obviously been here for a while. You might want to deal with that. So, yes, the occasional uh, squatter has been has been uncovered here and there. <laughs>
0: Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I want to talk about the, the really I think intriguing work that you've been doing the last few years with with Mark and Davis Love. Uh, really intrigued by that, but also because I think it's timely to talk to you uh, in regards to Pete Dye who passed away recently. Yes. And he was yes. um, like so many other people. He was a, a huge influence on your life. How did you become get to know Pete and, and enter his his orbit?
1: Well, there's a little bit of a lead up if you don't mind. No, please go ahead. Um, And, uh, well, once, once I've formulated the idea in my mind that I really and truly wanted to be a golf architect, which, which had its seeds, believe it or not, in church, um, sitting in church as a younger person, I would, I don't know if if you would have seen on the, on the back of the pew in front of you, there's often these offering envelopes and pencils and things. And I would draw golf holes on the back of these envelopes. I, I guess maybe I was hearing the sermon, but maybe not. <laughs> right. And so that was sort of the beginning of, of me thinking about designing golf courses. And it, in college, it, it very much came to mind that this is what I, what I really wanted to do. Um, and fortunately, believe it or not, in Greenville, South Carolina, there were, uh, uh several golf architects here. Uh, where I live now, and there's even more um, who we had some family connections with and sort of guided who, who me Who some a little of those bit.
0: those figures, by the way?
1: Well, back in that day, yeah. it, it would have been Tom Jackson and mm-hmm. Tom Marzoff, who works for Tom Fazio, right. uh, John LaFoy, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, before John, um, George, George Cobb, Cobb. They, they had worked for George Cobb, and, you know, it just happenstance that you know i grew up here and these folks were in my orbit um and gave me some some direction well and you know as a side note i'll fast forward there are even more golf architects here now uh jeff lawrence who works for gary player uh Bo welling lives here um there's a couple of other gary player folks that have come and come and gone but they're still in this area um and so it's just very interesting. And we never see each other here in Greenville. <laughs> right. We usually see each other out on the road somewhere. So it's just, it's it's interesting. Who, who knew that Greenville, South Carolina would become a hub for golf architecture? Right. Um, but anyway.
0: It's like the, uh, the so, Greenville School, like the Philadelphia School. Oh, it's right. Greenville School, yeah, the, uh, yes. All the late, late 20th century architecture coming through Greens-
1: Greensville. That's right so anyway, as I was trying to formulate what it was I wanted to do, um, in, in the golf architecture world and not knowing exactly how, how to navigate this, John LaFoy and, and Tom Marzoff sort of guided me a little bit and and said, you know, think, think about what you want to do and who, who you might want to try to work with. And i Shortly after being married, uh, my wife and I went to the 1989 Tour Championship at Harbortown. And uh, I was aware of Harbortown and had obviously seen it on television and uh, walked that golf course. I, I was on the ground for the first time there. Um, and the the further I got into the round, starting at hole number one, the more I felt, you know, and not knowing really a lot of detail about Pete's evolution over time. That golf course just sort of grabbed me. Uh, I got to the 14th hole, and back in that day, the, the pot bunker left of the green was still in existence. It was quite deep, <laughs> and it had a ladder, and it was a it was a statement. Um, and when I saw that pot bunker, and I sort of that golf course together in my mind, I thought to myself, I've got to go find Pete. I've just got to find Pete and see, you know, does he have, you know, does he need somebody to pick up sticks or, you know, grease the equipment or whatever, you know? So I realized and found out after we went through uh, Hurricane Hugo, and I was living in Greenville at that time, that he was building the Ocean Course at So made my way down there, uh, tried to ride a bike down the entry road, which was a couple of miles long, uh, to the site and just couldn't do it. The, uh, the, the sand was so soft that I couldn't make the bike work. Huh. So a couple of us, we went out on the beach and fa- found our way to, to the golf course. And it was very much in the middle of construction, um, it was it just looked like the moon to me I, you know I didn't know what i was looking at and and as it turns out I know now that we entered the property uh, right at the 14th green and i met a couple of folks on on the site um, who ironically some years later i worked with this whole crew from the ocean course on, on some projects in Hawaii it was just it's just the strangest thing but anyway they connected me with Pete and Alice, and more specifically, Miss Alice. Um, we corresponded quite a bit. And um, early in, in my career, she suggested, because of the amount of work that Perry Dye had, that I contact Perry. And uh, technically got hired by Perry to work on some projects. And then we worked together on some projects with Pete. So that was nineteen ninety when uh, i was hired by the dive family and moved to to denver um to work with them and then started here and there working on projects with pete but certainly with uh with perry i've worked on some projects on pb's golf courses uh have gotten to know the the Dive family over the years you know over those 30 years now (laughs) so that's sort of where it started um Really, it, at Harbortown, and ironically, that's where I'm headed tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, was fortunate to, as you probably know, work with uh, Davis and Mark on a project there at Sea Pines a couple of years ago.
0: Right, right. Um, well, I,
1: I keep living these circles of life, and it's very comforting in one way, but it, the passage of time is um, also another thing that I'm aware of. Uh, but anyway, that well, every time that's you sort go back to these started.
0: places, yeah, you have to be cognizant of how much time's gone by since the first time you went there. If you're always going to a new place, you don't have any time marker.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's I see what you're saying. It's comforting, but you're like, wow, that was 30 years ago. I was Yeah, and, and then
1: in Harbortown, that's been three at least three renovations ago. Um, so <laughs> it's like, wow, this yeah. golf course has changed on the one hand, but it's also better on the other.
0: Did you work on uh, any specific golf courses in Colorado with Perry?
1: Uh, let's see, with Perry in Colorado. No, most of our work was elsewhere. Um, California, certainly the Pacific Rim, and, and that's how uh, actually my wife and I both worked for Perry. Um, we, we were sent to Hawaii to work on two projects on site. That's where I really cut my teeth in construction and, you know, Pete and Alice both said, get get your rear end in a ditch and learn from the ground up. And, and I was fortunate to do that. And uh, we built two golf courses in Hawaii over about a three-year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, I'm trying to think, uh, did some planning and so forth for projects in Japan and Australia. Uh, but most of my time with, with Perry, and that was a, a Perry and Pete project, uh, w- was spent, Planning, designing, and building those golf courses in Hawaii. Yeah, and meeting wild boars along the way. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I can decide if I think Pete Dye and his body of work and his his thoughts on design are perfectly documented. and We understand all there is, or if he still remains an enigma. And if if no matter how much we see from his work, because his work is as televised as any other architects' works has ever been, I think. As much as we see and familiarize ourselves with him, there's still something there that isn't quite knowable or understandable. Uh, do you feel like you have a complete grasp on on Pete's design thoughts and process? Can you ever really understand uh, somebody else's artistic process you know, the, the way that they do?
1: Well, I would say yes and no. I would say a little bit yes and a lot no. Okay? <laughs> the the little bit yes is you know every conversation I would have with him and you know I was fortunate to help him in the early stages of routing and planning of White Oak in North Florida, one of his very last golf courses and he he always sort of had a very uh, a, not rigid but a, a a general consistent set of ideas from a baseline standpoint, from a routing standpoint, uh, balance uh, of, of golf holes, balance of direction of par threes, um, trying to use features of the property, whether they were dramatic features or just a wetland line, to help uh, move golf holes in both directions. He was very keen on making sure that you were able to, uh, to play his golf courses. You needed to be able to hit the ball from... From right to left and from left to right, all on the same golf hole. So there were certainly some very core beliefs that that he had and came back to over and over again. But once you depart from that and go start the creative process, there is no telling what was going on uh, in in Pete's mind. And the evidence of that, for example, is I'm, I'm helping to restore one of his golf courses in Florida and over the years he has changed his own golf courses multiple times with his own thoughts and ideas and and i i can also remember times when and i will have heard stories about this or seen it myself that as soon as a golf course opens one of his golf courses opens he's immediately wanting to change <laughs> many aspects of the golf course so the creative process is just never ending mm-hmm. And and as you are aware, if you if you just look at his body of work and and the simplicity but still brilliance of some place like Harbortown Golf Links versus some place like Whistling Straits, you know they are so different, um, and there is such a a span of time between the construction of those two golf courses that is so different and so creatively distinct. But they both do have. Uh, some of those core beliefs that I talked about at first that you can see if you just really look. Um, so trying to understand Pete's creative thought process it, it would have been impossible. But what was possible was to understand, and I, I learned from, from Pete and from Bobby Weed early on that, you know, open your mind, uh, let the ideas flow. Um, th- there's lots of ways to, Get to the destination you want to get to. Don't confine yourself to, you know, the same old golf holes over and over again, which was very, um, very instructional and, and helpful to me. I, I happen to be a person and I, I joke about this a lot. I, we, we, we all have a left brain and a right brain. And there's parts of me that is analytical and parts of me that are creative. And those two things sort of, Uh, battle with each other all the time when I think about a a project, but I'm thankful that I've been able to tap into both sides of my brain and learn from other folks how to be creative on the one hand or how to be a little bit more analytical on the other hand. So to answer your question, uh, trying to fully understand Pete's creative process would not have been possible.
0: This is asking for conjecture, conjecture, but... Do you have the sense that most architects would really relish the chance to do what Pete did so often and go back and tinker with his own designs and continue to have the ability to express himself and make modifications? Or is it more the case that once they're done, they're done and they're moving on to the next project?
1: Well, you know, we're all so different. Um, I think it just so happens that I would relish the opportunity to after a number of years of folks playing one of our golf courses and understanding what challenges or, or or problems or positive things about the golf course that might exist over a few years, that you'd be able to uh, adjust the golf courses, I, you know mr ross adjusted his golf courses it's just it's part of what we are we we like to build and tinker and <laughs> and change so i can only speak for myself and that if given the chance would like to hear from the owner or the users of our golf course over a period of time and say hey how can we make this better um you know the ocean course of keo is a perfect example of something that has changed tremendously over the years uh, just like Augusta National has, hopefully for the better. Um, and if that were, were projects that I built uh, originally, I think I would be personally comfortable uh, being asked to come back and see how you could improve it. I, I can't speak for other folks, but I, I, I know that that would, be a, that would be a gift if you were able to go back and just take a look.
0: What are some of the most significant changes that the Ocean Course has undergone since it first opened?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. Um, there, you know, that environment is is somewhat harsh. Just being hard up against the ocean with the constant wind blowing and storms and whatnot. So, as as Pete said, and I probably won't quote this exactly right, but you know, he said from the beginning, the ocean course walks, it moves, it changes, and you just got to walk with it um, and and try to uh, harness what's happening in Mother Nature with mother nature and, and deal with what's thrown at you on that golf course. Um, so as far as the changes, you, you know, um, we were, we were fortunate to, uh, take a look at photographs, mostly old, old slides, uh, from the golf course, uh, right before it opened and during the, the Ryder cup and sort of remember how the place looked you know, back in that day, um, it back in that day it was it was a little bit more target golf, um, and what I mean by that is the dunes and the sand was a little bit more um, prevalent and a little bit more of a hazard than it is today. Now, that golf course was built for the Ryder Cup, and that was Pete's focus, and uh, that it it challenged those guys tremendously, as you may recall. But Day day by day, every day, for years and years, it is a resort golf course. Um, so I believe that there was a, a thought that, hey, maybe we should have a little bit more turf here, and maybe we should have a, just a hair less sand here and there, partly because the, the environment was you know blowing the sand onto the golf course, and, and by securing some of the areas with turf grass, they could accomplish a couple of things all at once, but meaning securing the site and making it a little bit more playable for the average uh, resort guest um having said that as you know (laughs) it, it is a difficult golf course no matter how much turf grass is out there and it it remains you know pete's design um and as you know as well pete also tweaked a number of holes out there over the years as future events came you know world cups came there and senior pgas and then of course the pga uh came uh in 2012 and we were preparing the golf course this time for the pga that will happen next year um so mostly maintenance related uh we did add a few tees um it was it was interesting to uh, hear from carrie Haig of the pga of america and he, he walked with us early on before uh any of this maintenance and and upgrade work was taking place. And, you, you know, as Derek, as you know, the distance the golf ball is being hit today is is an issue. I mean, it's, it's amazing on the one hand to watch these guys do what they do with the golf ball. But on the other hand, we really do need to challenge them somehow. And Kerry's comment to us was, hey, you know, these long par fours on this golf course now need to be at least five twenty. Um, to challenge the player that's going to be here during the PGA. And, of course, he was saying that for a couple of reasons, not only trying to keep the long par fours long, but also being able to deal with wind conditions there. You know, it can be so extreme wind directions and wind speeds that you need to be able to have the flexibility. If, if, if a long par four is going to be downwind, he still wants to challenge you with a longer club, you know, into that green So we were able to add some tees, believe it or not, to that golf course so that he would have flexibility to set the golf course up. Um, We did a few things that sort of restored uh, uh, some features there um, that had been not really lost, but maybe covered up or blurred out a little bit by years of maintenance and conditioning. We exposed some more sand. The main One of the main new things we did is we, we actually built a proper driving range. <laughs> and I'd say proper, it, you know, for part of its life there, the driving range was used in one direction, basically playing towards the south from the old clubhouse location. And then when the new clubhouse was built a number of years ago, the driving range was flipped around and it played back generally to the north. And there really wasn't much interest in it. It was basically a field um, so we went ahead and uh, built a new fairly large practice tee and target greens and some bunkers out in the body of the range. And they have some plans to uh, add some cottages near the clubhouse. Um, so those cottages will have a beautiful view-, view of a pretty nice looking area, which is a driving range, plus the ocean in, in the distance. So we we touched every hole getting it ready, uh, some of which included making some tweaks so that um, galleries could circulate the property a little bit easier you know that could be a, a bit of a challenge on that on that site getting folks around r- regardless of how many are out there but you know because of the access to that to that property I would think that the uh, the number of tickets sold there would be fairly on the lower end uh, it's just difficult to get out out to the golf course as a matter of fact. When I went to the 2012 PGA, uh, the group I was with, we actually took a boat uh, from downtown Charleston to a, a dock on the island, and that actually worked out really well. <laughs> we didn't we didn't deal with any traffic. But as part of that experience, I learned quickly that you know these these majors are big, big infrastructure and big uh, events. And uh, it's it's a little bit of a challenge there, and they they have done some new things to uh, accommodate that off the golf course as well. So the coming PGA ought to be pretty comfortable. And it, it, as you know, uh, the Ocean Course is a beautiful, wonderful, almost almost one of a kind setting in the U.S. And uh, I look forward to to everyone seeing things uh, on television. One of the other things we did do. I, I probably should have mentioned this up up front. Is um again, the site is a bit harsh. Um, they've lost some oak trees over the years. Um, you may remember Rory's tree on the, the third middle hole. of number three sure. fairway, right? Well, a couple of years after he had <laughs> hit his ball into that tree, it it actually was knocked over in the storm. Uh oh. So last year, as part of our Restoration of that golf hole. We moved a, a fairly good sized oak tree from the sixth hole, so maybe about six hundred feet away. We moved it into that into that location, and to be honest with you, uh, and I have said this multiple times, I sure wish Pete could have seen this because for whatever reason, the tree that we chose just fits in that location so well. It's um, it, it, it is impactful. It is, it is sweeping away from the prevailing wind, just like the other trees around it. So it, it almost feels like, you know, we've we've finally got things in the right perspective. Um, it looks like it's always been there. And, and I was really pleased to be part of restoring that hole. And then we moved a few other trees on a few other holes as well. So that's that's a fun process. And hopefully no one will really notice it because they blend in so well.
0: And that third hole is one of the great holes on that whole golf course. It's so simple. Oh, yes. Uh, but that That's green, right. it all stems from that volcano green, that small little <laughs> green. That, yeah. It's just sitting there. It's not even defended except through elevation and shaved slopes. That's slits. right. So you're in a unique position that you're working with the PGA, and, and you mentioned your discussions with Kerry Haig. You're also working with Davis Love, one of the, you know, in his day, the longest hitter on tour. And so you have a perspective on distance, and I don't want to get into the whole recent USGA RNA uh, press release and that whole conversation. But Adam Scott uh, a few months ago, or sometime last year, made an interesting comment that, to the effect that you know when are, when is the tour going to realize that they they can't keep making golf courses longer? It plays into our hands. That's not the way to challenge us. What what's your viewpoint on that? You just mentioned that that uh, the PGA of America wants. You know these holes to be stretched out longer and longer. They want to try to get longer clubs in the player's hand for approach shots. But it seems to me that absent these gale force winds that come in and and change the complexion of the golf course, you can't make these holes long enough. In normal conditions, the the players can just continue to launch the ball three thirty down the field. So, I mean, is length, in your opinion? I mean are we going in the wrong direction, just c- continuing to try to lengthen tour events courses?
1: I I, th- I think so, but the, the reality of the current rules sort of makes us do that. Um but having said that, from a golf architect standpoint, I, I think a number of us and, and I would say Pete, yeah, learned from Pete, learned from, from Bobby, learned from Bill Coor, that, you know, we can defend the best player defend against the best players in the world at the greens probably more so than we can by just adding length. Look, look, look at Harbertown. <laughs> you know, it can't get any longer. It's pretty stout from the back tees, really. But in, in today's world, it's a little bit on the shorter side. But it's defended quite well by uh, trees and, and hazards and, and this small size of the greens. But you know, I I, I sort of took in information over a lot of years uh, from a lot of folks about this whole distance issue, you know, folks like Mike Davis and Jack Nicholas and, and Bobby Weed and, and Pete and lots of other, lots of other folks. And I, I just came to the thought that because I see different sets of rules in other professional sports, you know, baseball, it is different at every level you know the amateur level the college level the, the professional level basketball is different between men and women and those different levels football is certainly different between high school and college and professional and and to to some degree the word bifurcation is a dirty word for some folks when you talk about bifurcating the rules and i i don't know why some folks resist that so much i I, I hear some purists say that golfers, the, the golfing public, uh, folks that are either avid or just casual, that we're all bound together by this same set of rules. And and the more I thought about it, I, I really disagree with that sentiment. I, I think we are, and, and this is not to be... Um, E- egotistical, or or build the profession of golf architecture up in any way. But I think we as golfers are really bound together by the golf courses themselves. Think about, you know, if if you were an avid baseball player you, and you were forty years old, you're not going to be able to go play a game in Yankee Stadium. But if you're an avid golfer and you're forty years old, you can play at. Pinehurst number two. You can play at Torrey Pines. There's so many places where the expert player and the ranked novice player can compete on the same piece of property and play the same golf holes. They might be from different tees and all of that, but I think the fact that we use and touch and feel and think about and dream about these golf courses that that have held majors and significant events that we can play, I think that more so than anything binds us together rather than the rules. So I got to a point where I thought to myself, I, I just I feel comfortable with bifurcating the rules, and therefore, why couldn't we have somewhat different sets of rules for equipment, um, and and that could even be a further bifurcation. Whether you know maybe the USGA says for these upper level amateur events, here's the set of rules we're going to play by. And the PGA tour may have, you know, an even slightly different set of rules um, when it comes to equipment. And and I don't, I don't know why so many folks uh, resist that. Um, And and I don't know that it's a majority of folks that resist that, but it's enough that um, it's, it's been a nice debate to have. (laughs) And I know that, the USGA and the RNA have been studying this for so long, um, and I know there's not an easy answer, but my goodness, we, we, we need to address it. We need to start to figure out what are the creative ways where we can address this because the we, I have said for the longest time, you, you know, one day in the very near future, and I would have said this 20 years ago, someone the size of Michael Jordan is, is going to step up to the first tee at the Masters at Augusta National. And his physical abilities, along with the equipment that we have, are going to be very difficult to to overcome and challenge from a distance standpoint. And that has happened. Look look at these tour players today. And Davis says this because he's around them so much. He's like, you know, I go into the locker room now, and these younger guys, you know, say 30 and under, I walk in and I am surrounded by NFL linebacker-sized people. And he's exactly right. You know, Brooks Kepka is a, a, a massive guy. <laughs> he could play NFL football. Um, and so the, the physical aspects are, are getting better. And as you know, everything else about golf is getting better. So distance is one place where this is coming out. And just lengthening golf courses over and over and over again, even if they are just at the highest level, has really does have to come to an end. So I, I've, I come down on the side of of some sort of bifurcation of the rules to a, to address it.
0: Well, I said I said I didn't want to get into that discussion, but and you just you just went there. <laughs> but I, I I appreciate that. I I think I'm in uh, in agreement with you. I think, I think a lot of people are more opposed or more fearful of change than they are the actual bifurcation of the rules it's just, it seems unnatural. It seems, it seems different. And, you know, it's a natural, it's kind of a human reaction to resist things that, that uh, situations where you, you can't predict the outcome of, um, but there's a lot of people like you and, and, and I follow along that the answer is crystal clear. And it has to do with, you know, just making the professionals play slightly modified equipment for the sake of the game. I agree. And so you mentioned Davis Love. One of the things, and switching back into into architecture now, uh, one of the things that I've always really appreciated about he and, and Mark when they design a golf course is they're steeped in history. They're they're they admire old golf courses. They understand the traditions. They understand uh, the first generation of American golf courses. They're they design golf courses, but but they but they love golf too. They love to go play good golf courses, and that seeps into into their design aesthetic. But what I really appreciate about them is often when they design golf courses, going back you know twenty years, they've incorporated elements of historic architecture into their designs, which is in- interesting. But they're, it's always thematic instead of literal. They they'll use a, a Seth Raynor style, I guess. It's not the right word, but they'll do something that's Rayner esque or or is uh, indicative of what Donald Ross might have done. And then Pete Dye as well. There's a lot of references to that, but it's not a carbon copy. They're not building a literal uh, beer it's hole. You know, they're not building a literal... Alps hole you know they're they're just kind of taking those elements and riffing on them and creating some something new uh it, how how has that experience been with you working on it especially like at the the plantation course at Sea Island which you which opened last year you took an uh an old course that was it was actually a, a Walter Travis 9 but I his work there only existed for a, a year or two before Allison uh came in and basically remodeled it but it was a Travis origin with uh, some Allison modifications to soften it, and then uh, Dick Wilson added another nine, and then Reese Jones combined it all together, and then you went in and kind of did some some retroactive shaping of the holds to to bring some some older classical American historical elements into it so what was your experience this is a long long long-winded way of asking what what's your what's been your experience working with Mark and Davis and and referencing this old type of architecture incorporating it but without being too literal about it
1: right right well as you say I mean we're we're kindred spirits in, in that regard I very much revere the older golf courses and and we've we sort of seamlessly discussed these ideas and thoughts. And so we have a, we have a baseline of, of experience and knowledge uh, and, and affinity for some of the same things. Um, and so, for example, as you say, the plantation course, we sat down and said, okay, where do we want to go with this? And very early on, we did say to ourselves, we we don't want to do literal copies of anything, but we do want to you know sort of compare it to to making a stew. We we do want to have hints of Pete Dye and hints of Rayner and, and McDonald and hints of an older style without running around eighteen golf holes and and replicating any any particular hole over and over and over again on those eighteen and. You know, it was it was my job to, uh, and Mark and I talked about this a lot, and Davis uh, a little bit less, but we we had to formulate the details. And I, you know, I said to Mark early on, this place is going to be all about the details. You know, it's a it's a relatively flat site uh, that in the past it had a a lot of earthwork moved on to it, um, so we we wanted to simplify some of that, but yet infuse some detail into every golf hole, whether it be bunkers or the railroad ties that we added, uh, trying to make sure that we had a bunker style that was cohesive, but yet each bunker was had its own personality. I was very keen on making sure that we worked together with our shapers and made sure that we didn't just reproduce the same bunker over and over and over again. Uh, the chocolate drops are another thing. Um, and so we, we sort of cobbled together some old photographs that showed some of these details. And we thought about some of the Rainer and McDonald holes that we, we love and did a variation on the theme for some of those holes. Although number three is a redan that is fairly, it, it, it holds fairly true to many of the redans you would have seen out there in the world with our own little twist on it and uh, again we we very much did not want to just as you said replicate golf holes but we wanted to have the in the stew we wanted to have those flavors that sort of came together as our own design our own thoughts strategically and aesthetically uh certainly agronomically as well um to to have something that's original but yet feels like it's somewhat timeless and the combination of all of those things together, I, I believe, um, has created something a bit unique. Um, we, we all feel like uh, we don't have a particular style. We are all influenced by uh, the same folks over the years. Um, you know, Needless to say, Mark and Davis have known Pete for, for years and have played his golf courses and are influenced just like I am. By Pete's work, and I'm I'm even further influenced uh, by my time, somewhat working with Bill Coor and knowing Bill and seeing his 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 projects and properties. So we try to do something that is our own, but yet harkens back somewhat to the past, and that's that's about the best way I can describe it. And you know, all at the same time, we're working in in Virginia and Charlottesville on completely different ground completely different set of ideas and if you were to transport yourself between the two projects that were happening exactly at the same time there's nothing about them that is the same and i think that's something we're we're proud of
0: let's get into that a minute so so the course is birdwood at the university it's going to be utilized by the university of virginia golf team it's at the Boris head resort and it is a as right. you just mentioned it's a it's a fairly hilly property there's a lot of uh, elevation and, and ground movement in there. How yes. do you, so when you when you encounter that, especially coming off of uh, the plantation course, which you just mentioned was is really flat. There's almost no relief there, uh, and the same with Atlantic Dunes at Sea Pines, another uh, low country flat golf course that you have to kind of create uh, everything you see in the detail and the and the relief. You have to create that. Now you're moving into a completely different type. of, of project and, and property. What what exactly is the, the theme there and, and how do you get to that place?
1: Well, uh, so again, I'm going to have to take you to a little bit of a backstory. Um, we spent quite a bit of time routing uh, options. <laughs> I think we had 17 or 18 different routing options that were influenced by the fact. That the resort wanted to build some new facilities that had to go onto old golf holes, um, so it became fairly clear that we were going to, going to be building a new eighteen holes, um, and so you know the property every time, Derek, as you know, dictates so much about how the golf course will will look and feel, and we just the more we went around that golf course, we felt like. Uh, an older style sand flash bunker with a very informal top edge would work there. It would it would fit seamlessly into the hillsides. Um, we, we spent a fair amount of time trying to determine grassing, uh, which from an architect's standpoint helps you to define what the golf course looks like. Um, Charlottesville and that whole region is a very difficult place to grow grass. There is no... 100% right answer there. <laughs> so we have a mixture of grasses there that is, is not unusual, but it was a little bit unusual for us because we have warm season and cool season mixture there, quite a bit of both. Um, so that was going to give the golf course uh, an aesthetic. And, and we learned a little bit from our neighbors. Farmington Country Club is right across the street. Uh, Bill Coir and his his guys, Dave Axelin and Rodney Cole, they were working across the street doing some some things. So I've spent a fair amount of time understanding and and, and viewing what they were doing, as well as understanding and viewing what their old golf course looked like and how it performed turf wise. So we didn't want to do anything that was exactly like that because we were, you know, literally across the street from each other and would have folks playing both both facilities one's private and one's public but i I just know that there's a there's a shared group of folks that are going to be playing those facilities so with the topo change and the, the the large areas that were going to be cleared and and no tree there was very few really good trees in the new areas that we were building in so we we knew that there would be big areas of native fine fescues and native grasses and you, you put all those things together and you come up with something that's a little bit unique for that area, I, I would say. Um, and it's, uh, it's a big property. It's a big, big site. It has big sweeping views now because of what we've, what we've cleared out. Um, they were, because they're a resort, and, and we are finding this to be true everywhere we go, they understand that just building 18 holes is probably not what they need um so they came to us and said hey what do you think about incorporating a short course here what do you think about incorporating a putting course here obviously the golf teams need their new practice areas as well so we built a tremendous amount of golf on that site they actually have 32 greens uh, plus a one acre putting course so it was a, a big property a big big project um we probably will not open until labor day weekend i believe or i'm sorry uh, maybe memorial day weekend Um, and uh, it's it was just a massive undertaking with lots of elevation change as you say while we were working at the same time at sea island with no elevation change and the two golf courses could not be more different (laughs) which is exciting it's that's something that keeps you uh keeps you motivated and thinking and pondering you know when i was uh, walking at sea at island with with the fellows we'd talk about virginia and when we were in virginia we'd be talking about sea island and then off to the side mark and davis were like well what are you doing at kiowa and so just the the creative juices were flowing and the conversation is always always uh, neat when you have so much going on and we're we're very thankful for that so hopefully uh, you'll you'll get to see See that that golf course this coming uh, spring and summer, and uh, we're looking forward to getting that open.
0: There is such a a degree of cross-pollination in architecture, and and it it goes across horizontally, contemporaneously, as you talked about. You know, you're you're giving information to to Mark and Davis about your work at the Ocean Course, and you're you're talking about your projects uh, in Virginia and uh, at um, St. Simon's Island, you're going across the street at Farmington and seeing what Dave Axlan's doing there. But it's also vertically through time. And we, you mentioned it before, you're incorporating uh, features that, that touch on uh, historical eras all the way up through, through contemporary times. You know, Pete Dye was you know, the story is, you know, he he looked at Robert Trent Jones and, and his contemporary and, and cut the opposite direction. And he incorporated elements that he, he uh, observed on his trip to Scotland and brought Scottish elements back. But I, I think he also, and this has been documented before to some degree, I don't know how true it is. But, you know, if you look at his, his shaping in a lot of his courses, it's very angular, it's very Seth Rayner-esque, you know, he brought those Flat bottom, you know, his waist areas are often flat bottom bunkers with steep grass faces that remind, uh, you know, really recall Rainer and also maybe even more so Bill Langford, who I think <laughs> built so many golf courses in the states where, where Pete died. you know, was traveling when he was selling insurance and growing up. And he probably noticed a lot of those same uh, engineered features. Uh, just in his playing days from from being young and and all, so all of that kind of goes into the as you call it the stew and it, it's just um it, it's really neat how architecture is so tied into different eras and times and also across the the horizon amongst contemporaries and everybody's kind of watching what everybody else is doing and sharing information and um and the downside of that of course is is you can and you can get into cul-de-sacs where things get a little too homogenized you know you get into periods in time where You know, people are doing a little too much of the. All the people are doing too much of the same thing. So uh, it's just interesting how ideas flow throughout your industry.
1: Oh, yes. Um, And, and, you know, golf architects generally, uh, and we as a group, I happen to be a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. We're a fairly congenial group of, of folks. Uh, if you, if, if you're a loner, you probably don't <laughs> fit in to our group, which is quite large. And, and, and I would include, you know, folks outside of that group. You know, my friend Jim Urbina, who I worked with for uh, a number of years is not an ASGCA member, but he, he knows every one of us. Um, and we, we exchange ideas, you know, Tom Doak, uh, you know, outside of, outside of our. Our, our, you know, proper society, if you want to put it that way. So, um, yes, there's lots of exchange, and, and it's it's something that those of us that have done this for a number of years, it's it's a lifestyle. Uh, it's not just a career. It's not just a job. It's a lifestyle and a passion that you just can't you just can't. See. Put away and set down, and put aside, and and go think about you know playing tennis for a, a few weeks, and then come back to it. It just sort of permeates everything that you do, <laughs> so it's only natural that we would uh, have these conversations. And and as you may know, um, Davis is a is a thinking machine. You know, we we may walk a golf hole, and through that. 450-yard walk, we might talk about Rainer, McDonald's, uh, turkey hunting, uh, skiing, <laughs> uh, fishing, uh, talk about uh, barbecue uh, uh, pits and, and barbecue recipes and, you know, fried chicken. And, I mean, it's just, you know, you just got to keep up. But it is it, it is something that we just love to do, just throw out ideas and go back and forth amongst lots of topics and somewhere in there, we are building a golf hole. <laughs> so, it, 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 for whatever reason, it d- just seems to be natural amongst the three of us and some of the construction guys that we tend to work with over and over again. So it's uh, it's uh, it, it, it's very much a relationship building kind of process, um, and it's like I say, it's 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 very very comforting and rewarding um, to share ideas. Yeah,
0: I, I think you're you're great editors too because. That, that there's a lot that could go wrong on a golf hole if you're if you're thinking about all that stuff that you're talking about. So
1: <laughs> you're really good at, you know, narrowing it down to the essentials. That's that's right. And sometimes it's my job to herd the cats, as they say. And at some point you got to make a decision and build something that is within the conversation we just had. <laughs> right. Right.
0: I want to go back to uh, Birdwood for just a second. Okay. An element of that is, you know, it's it's going to be used by the University of Virginia golf team, which brings a whole nother set of dynamics into the equation. And a lot of facilities yes. and universities around the country are either building new golf courses for the golf team, renovating or building new practice facilities. And we just talked a minute ago about, you know, the PGA Tour players and the length problem and how difficult that is uh, for an architect to... Handle all these 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 different elements that go into designing a golf course that you know is going to be used by people who can carry the ball with their driver three hundred and twenty yards, and college players are really no different. They can hit the ball you know just as far as professionals, even farther because they're not playing for for money and they probably don't hold back as much. Right. How do you approach a, a when you're designing a course like Birdwood? Are you doing anything on the golf course to address that or to to challenge them in certain ways, or do you, do you do that in the practice facility and set up a, a practice uh, complex where they're going to, cause that they spend most of their time, you know, honing their game on the practice range. Is that where you can, you can do the good work for them?
1: Well, uh, Derek, I would say both. Um, we, we were fortunate to have the room to uh, build them multiple practice areas and they have a new beautiful uh, team building that houses both, both of the teams um, so they, they have all the modern conveniences that will develop uh, good players into great players there at the University of Virginia. So that, that's an amazing aspect in and of itself. But on the golf course, you know, <laughs> this is a little bit like the ocean course. It, it, it's a challenge because you have a facility that's, that is part of a resort. It's also a daily fee facility. Um, and as you say, uh, we need to challenge the best college players in the world at, at the same time. And so, as I said earlier, we made sure uh, that we thought about how to challenge these players at the greens. Um, th- this happens to be a large uh, property physically. Um, so our features are relatively large. The greens are, are quite large, very much in contrast to the smaller greens that the plantation course at sea island um so we we set out right from the beginning to say to ourselves okay uh let's challenge these guys at the green and let's create a couple of hole locations that will challenge the best players regardless of how far they hit the ball from the tee um so we really tried to think through that hole by hole by hole um while knowing that the golf course could be set up much easier for, you know, let's say uh, senior ladies' day, or let's just say they had a a, a junior uh, event out there, you know, kids that are maybe twelve years old. So we have, as is a necessity today, we have lots of tees. Um, we tried to get as much length as we could from uh, from the back tees for these college players, but we also somewhat intentionally. St- step back and said and, and, and I've learned this from Pete and from Bobby you know it's not a bad thing to to build a golf course with five par threes um, because that's the one place you can somewhat dictate the club that you're asking the player to hit um, so it, it, it worked out well that that was the case at Birdwood that we had a routing that that uh, utilized five par threes um, and Again, with with the length that we have, so it's a par seventy-one. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they won't shoot as 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 far under par as as in the past. And again, it's a completely new golf course with with some more length. Um, but we we tried to challenge them from the tee. Uh, but again, it, it's really our, our focus was really on on the greens and trying to challenge them strategically uh for certain hole locations on on the greens. Um so that's that's a balancing act that, that is really interesting and thought-provoking. We we have a set of tees for um we would call them the family tees that are not even 4000 yards. Um so you're you're talking about a 3900 yard golf course all the way back to 7300 and some yards. Um and so you are trying to capture all those various stakeholders in there, which is another reason why we need to do something about the length of the golf ball because, you know, we just, we have so many tees now and it's, it's a little bit cumbersome, uh, to be honest. And, uh, aesthetically we have to do some things to make sure that just, we just don't have a sea of tees out there. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it can just look like a little bit too much sometimes.
0: And of course, when you talk about d- defending the golf course at the green, that brings a whole nother set of issues and difficulties in because the modern college player and the modern you'll see this with tour event setups as well you know they want the greens to run at a certain speed they want fast greens and you can't build the kind of contours you might otherwise build knowing that you need to produce a surface that's going to roll at at 11 or 12 or even higher so that that takes another tool out of your your belt when you can't you know you can separate levels by tiers but you really can't you know crown things and create really interesting pin placements when you need to kind of flatten everything out to accommodate these higher green speeds
1: that that is exactly right uh, although <laughs> although and sometimes I calling the old man meaning Davis <laughs> uh, we're, we're we're comfortable with that to to a degree you know we'll we'll push that envelope and you know we kind of get get cross with the tour sometimes when, when they say, Oh, you know, we can only put a, a a hole location on a 2.4% slope maximum. And, you know, we're not quite sure why that has to be the case (laughs) because, you know, maybe you cut a hole in a 3% slope and that's how you're going to challenge this player. Because if, if it's a 450 yard par four, and we just have no way to lengthen the golf hole, those guys are not going to have a very long club coming into to that hole location, so maybe it is okay to cut a hole on a 3% slope. 3% used to be kind of the standard. You know, that's cupable at almost any green speed. Um, but you, you're, you're exactly right, and it's a, it's a tangled web trying to make sure that you don't do too much uh, so that there are plenty of hole locations. For example, at Birdwood with the resort, they've got to be able to move the – the whole locations around and accommodate lots and lots of play, um, but on the other hand, we do know that we can challenge these guys at the green as 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 much as any place. It's at, at the green. Augusta National is difficult for for two reasons. Number one, you're competing to win the Masters, <laughs> so it it could be six thousand yards and it would still be hard to to try to win that golf tournament right. because it's called the Masters. And number two, it, its defense are the greens. Needless to say. And if if you understand that golf course and you understand that the greens are the defense and that trickles all the way back to the T and you have to make sure you are approaching those greens from the right location and the right angle uh, on your approach shot. So to the extent we can do that, we really try.
0: I feel like this has been a, a very uh, nice and, and fun and congenial conversation, but now we have to talk about something that is slightly controversial and just down the road from Charlottesville, you've just been hired at Belmont, which uh to to do some some fairly substantial work there. Now for the listeners, I'll I'll give the quick backstory. Belmont was used to be called uh Hermitage Country Club. It was the site of the 1949 PJ Championship, uh, and Sam sneed won it there. And it goes all the way back to the ni- uh, 1916, I think, is when it opened. And it's an uh, A.W. Tillinghast design. So there's quite a bit of history in this golf course. It's owned by the city of Richmond, and it's been kind of run down, and it, it needed uh, uh, some work done. And a lot of people wanted, you know, to bring back the historical aspect to just have do a, a, a renovation. But the city bid out the operational contract to it, and they gave it to the, the First Tee of America. Won the contract, and their plan was to modify the golf course in, in a substantial way, and basically, you're going to blow up some of the uh, some of the holes there and build a, a short course, and then t- modify it uh, the other holes as a, as a regulation 12 hole golf course. So obviously there there is there, uh, some controversy there some that that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. They're losing a, a a historical asset that a lot of people thought just needed a little polishing. on the other hand i, I and I get that i I'm, I'm sensitive to that. on the other hand, over the last few years. And I'm not sure how widespread this is, but in you know in the in the the feedback that I get and and I talk about it in this podcast a lot, and 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 you hear a lot about it uh, in in dedicated golf circles, is this idea that 18 holes may be too much, and why don't why don't we just build golf courses that fit the land? And if they're eight holes, or if they're 11 holes, or 12 holes, doesn't that fit into our lifestyle more? Isn't that a, a better way to play golf? So there's a lot of momentum behind that. So now you you were given the contract for this. Uh, project, and you're kind of caught between these two sentiments, uh, you have great respect for, I'm sure, Tillinghast and, and the history of this golf course, but you also have a chance to do a, a really wonderful, creative, full-fledged 12-hole golf course that might mean something to the community. So I wonder if you could just kind of uh, talk about the deliberations. Was there, was there ever a point when, when uh, Davis and Mark and yourself thought about this and said, you know, this, we don't want to be a part of this? we're not we're not going to be the the people that uh, eradicate this historic golf course or were you more excited about uh, the opportunity to do something kind of fresh and creative
1: well we were excited about the opportunity to do something fresh and creative while Derek also being able to restore 12 actually really and, and i'll explain in a minute really restore 18 golf holes there so it you know, in today's world, as you just said, uh, golf has changed because the culture has changed, um, and we we have said as a group, let's just say, a group of architects, a group of builders, for a number of years. If you build a golf product that is thoughtful, good looking, well maintained, challenging, and interesting, it almost doesn't matter what it is. People will will use it um, and will come back over and over again. So as our first meeting was about a week and a half ago up in Richmond. And it's funny, uh, Brent Schneider, who is the CEO of the First T of Richmond, he keeps sort of checking in with us and saying, you guys still excited about this? Do you have any reservations about this? And, and he said it in our open meeting. And we, we responded once again by saying, well, Brent, th- this facility, this project, your program, checks off all of the boxes that golf has been needing and begging for uh, for many years all in one place. Um, so the fact that you've got the first tee aspect where they're bringing in generally youth to, to experience the game sometimes for the first time and, and grow the game, that requires certain programs and certain facilities while at the same time we are open to the public. And we'll be able to, uh, you can be able to play any number of, of permutations of all these golf holes that we mentioned and, and play golf maybe for the first time. You could be, we're building a putting course here. Um, you know, you may have never played golf, but you can come and get a Diet Coke and a pack of crackers and in 45 minutes play the putting course. And maybe that's your introduction to the short course one day, uh, which would be further your introduction into the whole game of golf. So, um, we're pretty comfortable with, with this because we are very much going to respect Mr. Tillinghast's work. Um, so the, the, the specifics of that include um, this short course, which is uh, six holes. We have decided to step back and say, okay, we need to revere his work. We need to uh, sort of celebrate his work. So we've decided to, where we can, replicate six of his favorite or six of our favorite tilling has par threes within the short course. Um, there's a couple of holes there that are original that we'll probably be able to reuse. And then, of course, the, the 12 holes are still the same routing that, that he produced many years ago. Uh, we have a fair amount of historical information, photographs and whatnot, that will allow us to put those holes back Um, So you'll have, you know, a full 12 holes of Tillinghast work. And as we step back and think about the programming of this site, there there are opportunities for you to practice only or play the six-hole short course or play nine holes on the big course or play 12 holes on the big course. Or there is a way to play 18 holes by combining the short course and the big course together. So as I said earlier, golf has changed, our society and our culture have changed. They are reacting to that change somewhat uh, by uh, going with the first T model. And we, we're very excited about it. We, we, we were concerned a little bit about funding level and that sort of thing, but my goodness, the, the first T of Rich, Greater Richmond has quite a staff. They have two other facilities that they've built and maintained and operate. So they know what they're doing uh, where we feel very comfortable about maintenance levels. You know, as Pete and Bobby taught me, you can't have good design without good maintenance and you can't have good maintenance without good design. So we're excited on those those terms. Um, as you said earlier, folks are resistant to change. But for this place to really survive and thrive, change is needed to happen. Um, and these are somewhat sympathetic. Uh, changes. They're big changes to some degree because we are, we are removing holes one through uh, six and creating something completely different. But it's something that sort of fits our society and, and, and the game of golf today. So we're, we're excited. We're not too expensive. Um, you, you, you know, Mark and Davis in particular uh, know Tillinghast work better than I. Um, I, have, I have certainly seen some of his golf courses and studied them. But uh, we, you know Davis winning at Wingfoot and Marcus played there year after year after year, and we've we've followed the the changes at Wingfoot and other other Tillinghast golf courses over the years because he's one of the ones we revere. Um, we're excited about the the challenge and uh, really think this is a great a great model. Obviously, they had problems with the facility they had. They were not attracting the the green fees. They were not attracting the rounds of golf that they needed to to really keep it healthy. And the first tee of of Greater Richmond has come up with an idea that we think will do just the opposite and attract lots of folks and keep it healthy for the long term and at the same time honoring and revering its history.
0: I guess it's always hard to know the viability of a golf course, and I think a lot of people are wondering – what if you went in with, uh, you know, a, a reasonable amount of money, not a tremendous amount of money, and you and you just kind of restored the golf course or cleared out some trees, made it playable, uh, kept the tilling hast aspect, and just kind of turned it into one of these great community courses that we see. Uh, you know, with a lot of TLC and you mentioned that there's a, there could be a good maintenance budget there and just kind of turn into one of these great community golf courses that have a that undergo a revival and, and become a gathering place for for the surrounding neighborhoods. And I think a lot of people are wondering, well, why why couldn't that model work? Um, and I don't know if you uh, if you have any greater understanding into the finances of this, but and, and what you've described you're doing, I mean, certainly is is a gr- is a great concept but i just think a lot of people are w- wondering like why does it have to be on, on this particular property
1: right right well uh, uh, again our our client is the first t um so they painted a picture that we happen to a- agree with um and and again understanding that so it, it, if you compare this let's say to uh the the nine holes down there at winter park in florida You know, that's very much, as you say, a community golf course, but it's a it's a quick playing option. It's fun and interesting and not too hard and and all those sorts of things. And I I presume after all these years, after it was sort of revived, that it's that it's doing well. And, you know, we've we've seen that kind of model uh, in other places and felt like because there are so many options here, this this will give an entry point to so many folks. That we we view it as a as a positive, to be honest. And um, we we've learned over the years, all of us in, in the business, that you know practice can become some folks' form of golf. Period. You know they they would just practice, and it's often. Yeah, I think of it as therapy. Sometimes, if I if I had an hour and fifteen minutes to go practice, I'd run through the clubhouse, get a pack of crackers and a coke, and buy some balls and go practice and you know my day is pretty complete just by hitting balls for an hour Mm -hmm. um and they did not have that opportunity there they did not have all the entry points um that we feel like at least personally as love golf design that we feel like are necessary on some of these facilities to attract folks so when they painted a general picture of how they thought the first tee would succeed here it, it just seemed like a, a great opportunity to us. And, and again, we we would not have been comfortable wiping out all of the Tillinghast. We just would not have been comfortable doing that. That would have felt a little bit like heresy. So because we are very much going to restore and create and celebrate uh, his work and his aesthetic, um, we, we feel like it checks checks off that box and will educate golfers uh, and and maybe future architects for the for the foreseeable future
0: yeah it's it's when you get into when you get past a certain point in time and i guess it's (laughs) Nineteen twenty nine. Anything that when you're when you're uh, significantly altering anything that was built before that, especially if it's by Tillinghast, it, it's just not going to sit well with people. But if you That's if right. you create something that that is really compelling and unique, and you, you as you mentioned, you know there there will be Tillinghast represented there in twelve uh, man size holes, as he you know is quoted as saying as for Winged Foot. Um, and then the other the other functions of the golf course are, are also equally compelling and interesting and engaging. I, I think a lot of that criticism will, will fall by the wayside. Uh, but it's, it's so interesting that when you get to this that era, that golden age era, there's a lot of defenders of it. And rightly so, it, 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 those courses deserve and need defenders. But when you go in yes. and you go to Atlantic Dunes and you wipe out, you know not wipe out but model over george cobb nobody says anything or when you you know and you do a plantation and and you're you're modifying dick wilson and reese jones uh, i don't think there is there's the hue and cry about you know uh stamping out that architecture so if, if, you know <laughs> right people have their favorites
1: that's right that's right we all have our we all have our biases i guess that's why god created you know redheads and and blondes and brunettes, you know that everybody's a little different. That's right.
0: Well, let's wrap this up with a round of questions. Yes, sir. This, the first one is is a little abstract and maybe too broad for this, but do your best. Pete Dye was uh, often said, "There's no new ideas in golf course design. You know, it's just the same thing in different packages." Is that true?
1: Oh, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, we just talked about Belmont, which is not totally new ideas, but I don't know of a, a facility that has this mixture of, of product on one piece of property that, oh, by the way, is less than 100 acres. Um, so maybe from a programming and a planning standpoint, there are some new things out there. But what what is new, Derek, is the the folks that come into golf and mature through Of course architecture ranks and we all have our own little different wrinkle on how things are done so you know as we pass through life uh, those are where the new things uh, occur and you know unfortunately we've lost pete but you saw for 94 years differences that that he made and hopefully uh, folks like us who are doing the same thing i'm 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 not. I'm just over halfway to 94, so hopefully the the new things of golf architecture will come from just new, new thinking and new people that are that are putting their uh, ideas on the ground and sitting on the equipment and and doing their work.
0: Sticking with Pete Dye, uh, I think that his his great triumvirate, and it's not just because they're the most highly rated and ranked courses on the lists, but his great triumvirate, I think most people would say, would be the TPC. Whistling Straits and the Ocean Course—they're uh, sort of like the biggest, boldest expressions of of his career. Uh, would those be your top three, or, or are you going to go a different direction?
1: <laughs> well, uh, again, as I told you, the story about Harbortown—you right. you, know—you cannot, you, you can't separate yourself from the emotion and the experiential part of why you like a golf course. So, Harbortown would certainly be one of one of my top three um and, and i i just i tend to i tend to enjoy pete's sort of lesser bold uh, expressions out there in the world I, I would agree with the ocean course partly because of the the achievement that it was on a difficult site uh, you know doing what he did was not easy uh, was not easy at all and i love tpc i, I do um, and lived right there for many years and studied it and have also seen it change um goodness that that place has changed from day one to today tremendously as you know um, but lo- but love it um, I, I i really do i really do love it and and i'm asked all the time what are your favorite golf what is your favorite one favorite golf course and i cannot answer that i do not have one favorite golf course there are favorites and they're for different reasons um and, and you know alongside of tpc i would put crooked stick you know i i i just have enjoyed that golf course and and you know knowing that it was something that pete basic pete now is basically birthed and raised up and you know brought to maturity <laughs> that that golf course and that club um fortunately i'll be going back there uh, in may for Pete's service. So I get to see it again. Uh, So yeah, it, I, you know, again, to say the three greatest, that's hard. That's very hard for me. Um, uh, There, there there's so many good golf courses that he did. And if you were to ask, what is your favorite golf course that anybody did? That is so difficult to answer. There's so many talented folks out there and properties that, that you, you may have, like, as I said, an emotional connection to that make it somewhat more of a favorite than others. But uh, I, I don't mean to discount your top three. Those are three great golf courses. By no means would would I argue with that. But I might add a you know a one A 1A and a one B and a two A and a two B <laughs> to your list.
0: Yeah, I've never been to Teeth at a Dog. I think that would probably go. Oh know, yes, that would factor into many people's top three.
1: Oh yes, I mean I was just thinking about the fifth hole there in preparation for this. For this call, I mean, to, you know, and, and others on that golf course. Yes, it's low profile, lovely. Uh, and, and obviously, Pete had a very emotional connection to that place.
0: What What's uh, an underexposed or, or lesser known Pete Dye course that you're very fond of? Something that might surprise
1: people. Well, y- you know, it, it's interesting that you ask that. Um, we worked in Austin, Texas for a number of years. Uh, building a golf course called Spanish Oaks and uh, I was exposed to Austin Country Club mm-hmm. there and saw the golf course pl- played the golf course actually I played it barefooted <laughs> I had some new golf shoes and they gave me blisters so I had to take them off and play barefoot and I didn't really realize what I was looking at um, and learned about it over time and it I don't know if you know much about that golf course, but just building that golf course, uh, creating something from a very difficult site back in the day, Rod Whitman was was there right. with with Pete yep. and tells the story of moving rock for over a year just to be able to start building golf holes. Um, as much as we all would love to walk on sandy ground where golf holes are just there, and we've all somewhat been fortunate to do that and just uncover golf holes and grass them and walk away. Um, there, there is an aspect of Pete that I believe, I never really asked him this, but I think he liked the challenge of difficult sites, meaning sites in a swamp like TPC Sawgrass, uh, sites uh, like Austin Country Club, which was a difficult place to, to build, And the detail that is there, if you really were to walk that property and just look at all the details of rock steps, rock walls, the golf holes themselves, the bunkers, how it all sort of fits together, that's that's a place I don't know that folks think about too much. I'm very grateful that we see it each year on television uh, with the match play that's played out there. But I I, I thought, for some reason, I I thought about that before our our call and thinking about a a site that's sort of a little bit off the beaten track. And it's so diverse, but yet created from a very difficult set of circumstances. And I think it's just lovely and wonderful.
0: And it just, that's a classic case of. outsiders observing a course and and maybe just reacting to it in whatever way they do but not knowing all the steps that it took to create it and that's part of the backstory in pete Dye's career so often is you know never never faced a challenge that he that he couldn't overcome when, when that's it came to right that,
1: that's exactly right and he came up with some innovative ways to deal with certain challenges yeah that we that we uh, have used to this day
0: I know you said you didn't want to do this, but I'm going to make you do it anyway. What's the best modern golf course that you've seen that you did not have a hand in designing and is not a Pete Dye course?
1: Lord have mercy. That's a tough one. Oh, boy. Um, you, uh, again, I, I, I mentioned part of our family tree includes Bill Coor. Uh, and and you know I I get just warm fuzzy feelings thinking about Bill. Uh, you know he he's such a gentleman and uh, so soft spoken and and so forth. So I you know I've 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 been fortunate to work on one of his golf courses with him. The 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 golf course at Cuscoilla we redid we the bunkers over a period, and mm-hmm. Bill was so busy. I I was fortunate to be able to help do that and. Brought Jeff Bradley in a little bit to do that. Um, that was Jeff Bradley's coming out party, really. That that's right, and uh, he was too busy really to do to do it. So I, I sort of handled it with the club and 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 have become quite fond of that golf course. It's uh, it's a real estate golf course, uh, um, which sometimes Bill is not fond of, but it's 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 done in such a way that it does not intrude into the into the golf course. The real estate really has rised on its own and the golf course as well. So I have an affinity for that one. That's a, a, a modern, modern golf course, but golly, that is so tough. Um, I have not been to, um, Pacific dunes, uh, but I have studied it and I've talked to Tom about it. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, as good as it gets. Um, and, and there's others that are in, along those lines, I, I, and I would say that's that's pretty good. That's uh, a, a natural site. Needless to say, um, it has a unique routing with the number of par threes that are part of that golf course. Um, it has a, a great setting. Again, needless to say, um, it's a. As I understand, it's a, a fairly easy walk. Um, and really, everyone that that plays it and has been there has just been glowing uh, about it. So I, that that's certainly going to be one of the best uh, for sure. And uh, and 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 I know a little bit about some of the other properties. I, you know, I contrast it with uh, Old McDonald that uh, Tom and Jim Rubina did, mm-hmm. and I, I worry a little bit about something like Old McDonald. This seems to have been a trend for some years of building these really big wide just huge golf courses and i you know from if you think about the human scale of something like that you know you think about mammoth dunes you stand on the tee and there's so much space being taken up i i like to remember the details of a golf hole and all the golf holes together and these big, big wide really massive golf holes and golf courses i just i just wonder if that's the right direction to go in i don't have an answer uh but pacific dune seems to be a little bit more confined it's got plenty of room and so forth so for all those reasons that's something that that, that's a golf course that i seem to really really like
0: yeah it it is a great contrast you have the 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 massive scale of the original abandoned course is big and then mount or old mcdonald is epic and then you have uh trails which gets back up in the woods and that's a completely different look and then Pacific Dunes is, is a really intimate tight rhythmic routing and that's the that's one of the big appeals of it it's it's just it's so human scale i like the right. way you put it's,
1: that right and i again i have not set foot on the property but have studied it and that was the sense that i have have gotten and i'm 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 glad my senses uh, are confirmed by you. So <laughs> well, you have
0: to get out there. I think you'll will experience it. You'll you'll really understand how it, it, uh, intimate is just the word that, it, that that I keep coming back to for Pacific Dunes.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I love Harbortown. It's it's about as intimate as it gets. Right, it is. Uh,
0: lastly, and this is more an indulgence to me, and I think to you as well. And and it's not really even a question, but but more of a comment. In my Kind of career when I when I started uh, getting into golf writing uh, was about the same time that I lived in Gainesville, and yes. I used to play the University of Florida golf course, and I played it before you and, and Bobby had remodeled it, and I played it a lot afterwards, and that was at the same time my my kind of big world golf architectural understanding was was coming online. And I was mesmerized by the things that you did at that golf course coming from a kind of a modest background. I hadn't played a lot of golf. I was playing a lot of golf in Florida at that time, but I hadn't been around the the country and and seen a lot of the great architecture yet. I was, I was studying it and learning it, but that golf course probably did more uh, to me to, to kind of, turn me on and, and switch switch on my understanding of, of great uh, architecture and shaping and the way the ground influences where the ball goes. And I think of certain holes out there like – the whole green setting of the second green, a par three. It's hard to even describe the the subtle movements and the major movements in that green. And I remember the next hole is a is the uh, par five that that climbs a hill. And the property has really nice elevation changes too. And and there's this this almost this shaping toward the back of the green. I'd never considered shaping behind a green, but there's this roll. It's almost like a false rear where if you hit the ball too far, it'll, it'll go over this mound and kind of go into this chipping area. And I'd never considered that before. I'd never seen it. And I just would, I would go around that golf course and notice the details, the features, the, the the different sizes and shapes of the bunkers and how contours would feed into bunkers or feed off of bunkers uh the the shaping of the greens and just utilizing those those land changes that i just mentioned the way greens were benched into hills or and the the false edges and uh it just you know i was always intrigued and engaged and switched on when i played that golf course it's a it's a small kind of tight property that that's, has a much bigger feel to it you 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 sense other holes but you're yet you're still you know, focus on the whole in front of you. So I'm just, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is this golf course had a profound effect on me. I still love it to this day. I I don't think it gets nearly enough uh, acclaim and attention and and you were just there recently to kind of bring back those elements that had worn off over time. So uh, just want to thank you for that and and say, well done and and great job.
1: Well, well, thank you. And that was a neat project. As you say, it's, the whole place is 115 acres, including golf course, maintenance facility, parking lot, clubhouse. So you can do something on a small piece of ground. Um, I, I think there's several of us who are trying to move the industry back towards a little bit shorter golf courses that are more (laughs) thought-provoking. So that's a great example. We were obviously confined by the four property lines and could not go across the street to build tees or anything. But as you say, and I appreciate, we appreciate your uh, attention to to the greens because, again, due to length, we felt like we needed to challenge the players at the green, and uh, we very much... Were influenced by a place like Pinehurst Number Two. If you think about some of the golf holes there, there's very much contour and fairway area past greens or to the side of greens, uh, so that if you if you miss your shot, you know if you try to go to that tuck pin and you miss it, you you might be real busy trying to get up and down. So we tried to recreate a little bit of that, um, knowing that that at one time had been a, a Ross golf course. We again didn't didn't try to replicate anything in particular, but just a, a general strategic and, and agronomic sense that uh, would challenge those golfers. And uh, again, you, you got students and the public that play it. So I appreciate your, uh, your kind words.
0: Scott Sherman comes from the Greenville School of Architecture. Although about what that means exactly, we'll have to continue to think harder. But considering his ability to shape and build golf courses by hand, his level of creativity, his willingness to think independently, and his understanding of how shots and holds work in relation to each other, he has much more in common with the Philadelphia School of Architecture. Although, candidly, what that means exactly also needs to be fleshed out a little more. If there's such a thing as a school of anything, doesn't there have to be a defined set of principles that are taught and handed down rather than simply a collection of people who came from a particular area? So let's continue to consider that. Belmont, an interesting project. It raises the question, should historic architecture, especially a golf course built by someone like Albert Tillinghast, be preserved at any cost, no matter its functionality or whether or not in the first place it was a course of particular merit? Some people will say... Absolutely, yes. In all cases, something like that should be restored and preserved. My question is, what if that golf course doesn't function in its setting anymore? What if it has greater value being modified? What if it provides a level of flexibility that would be applauded in any other environment or any other project of this scope that wasn't laid atop a historic course? What if it actually was used far, far more after this redevelopment than it has been for the previous X number of years leading into it. Just some end notes here. The topic of Cuscoilla and Jeff Bradley came up. Cuscoilla was the first... Golf course that Corn Crenshaw built after Sand Hills. They had a talking stick going on, I think, at the same time. But Jeff Bradley was sent there to build the bunkers, and it, it was the first time that he had been turned loose on his own to come up with uh, bunker shapes and a bunker style that fit that land. And his bunkering there has some of the most distinctive bunkering that came out of that late '90s, early 2000 era. It furthered the reputation of Corn Crenshaw and Jeff Bradley in particular. Bill has told me and and other people in the past that it was an interesting project for him, a harmonious convergence of two different purposes. The real estate component of the golf course, which is set right on the shores of Lake Oconee, this jagged shoreline that had lots of coves and and inlets. Kors looked at that area, which uh, most golf course uh, designers would deem the most valuable parts of the property. Great Waters, the Jack Nicholas course at Reynolds Lake Oconee, uh, just on the other side of the lake, used that same type of shoreline to put, I think it's a, like 11 holes down right on the water. Cor looked at that same type of land and determined that the better land for golf was up on higher land, inland. So Cuscoilla only touches the lake maybe on, on two holes, I believe. The rest of it, he said to the developer, it's yours. Put your homes on the lake. We're going to stick inland where the land is better. And at that time, that was a very interesting perspective, but we've come to know now we'd expect nothing less from Bill Kaur having that kind of idea of where he wanted to take the golf holes. So that's a wrap on episode 65. Thank you to Scott Sherman for joining me. Remember to give me a follow at FeedTheBall on Instagram and Twitter. I appreciate you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.